Today's reading from God's word. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Continuing in our series, Resident Aliens, the Church in Exile, uh, unpacking 1 Peter. Our text this morning is from 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. This is the word of God. For Christ suffered once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit pray, O oh God, that you would electrify the word to us and open up the eyes of our hearts and our understanding that we might be transformed by the word of God, and that your Holy Spirit may be at work in us, convicting and convincing us, and that we might leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, during a war between Britain and France, men were conscripted into the French army by a kind of lottery system. When someone's name was drawn, he had to go off to battle. And on one occasion, authorities came to a certain man and told him he was among those who had been chosen. And he refused to go, saying, I was shot and killed two years ago. At first, the officials questioned his sanity, but he insisted that it was indeed the case. He claimed that the military records would show that he had indeed been killed in action. How can that be, they questioned. You're alive now. He explained that when his name first came up, a close friend said to him, you have a large family, but I'm not married and no one is dependent on me. I'll take your name and your address and I'll go in your place. And that is indeed what the record showed. This rather unusual case was referred to Napoleon Bonaparte, who decided that the country had no legal claim on the man. He was free. He had died in the person of another. The substitutionary death of Jesus is the fulcrum point of our faith. 
By that I mean we died in the person of Jesus. This is how Paul and other New Testament writers can say things like, I'm dead to sin. The world is dead to me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The substitutionary death and atoning work of Jesus Christ. It is the foundation of our faith. What we believe and why we believe God loves and accepts us and how we've been brought to God. This idea of substitution. And not everyone believes it. Some people have a problem with it. But at its heart, it communicates love that is beyond our culture's superficial and vapid definition, right? I think we can agree on that, that our culture has a shallow definition of love, don't they? We talk about it a lot, but if this is any indication of what real love is, that the righteous would die for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God, we have rarely seen exhibitions of true love, at least in the biblical sense, at least how God thinks about love. And what Peter wants us to see, and the reason that Peter mentions this, is not only because it's a key tenet of our faith, but because Peter wants us to see that Christ suffered and suffers along with us. Remember, we said last week that one of the main themes now that Peter is focusing in on is the theme of suffering. And so Peter keeps going back and forth between our suffering and Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering and our suffering, and our suffering means something because we are united to Christ in his suffering. So the world says suffering is bad, but we say suffering is good because it unites us in a fellowship and communion with the Son of God. And there is victory in Christ's suffering that Peter wants us to look at because through the suffering of Jesus, we've been brought to God. You know, Jesus is a bridge. He's the bridge between us and God. And we can't walk over to the Father without this bridge, the bridge of Jesus and his suffering, atoning work. And this is why there's no salvation in any other but Jesus, because no one builds that bridge for us. No one makes it possible for us to be, as Peter says, brought to God. He brought us to God. I don't know that there's any deep theological or sort of like exegetical details behind that phrase, being brought to God. When I think about the phrase, I think about, you know, a parent grabbing a child by the hand and bringing them along. You know, my granddaughter, Charlie, is right there about to walk. She's walked three or four steps and we all go crazy. But one of the things she does is she stands up and she looks for a hand. And if your hand is on your lap, she'll grab your hand because she wants you to lead her. And so, I mean, she just holds the pinky and I, I lead her and she, you know, she does the stumbling thing and it's the greatest thing in the world. But Jesus brings us to God. He grabs us by the hand and he lovingly, through his redemptive work and suffering, brings us to the Father. He's a bridge 
But the suffering of Jesus is not just about the sort of forensic aspect that we think about. We've been justified, you know, the sort of legal forensic aspect of being declared innocent, you know, the guilt being vanquished. But there is an, an aspect of Jesus' suffering of divine solidarity with all humans who suffer, but particularly his people, right? It is a statement of solidarity with us suffering humans. And we might ask the question like, why hasn't God gotten rid of suffering yet? There are promises that one day he will, but for now, the answer from God was to enter into our suffering. And this is something that happens by both the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son enter into suffering. And the down payment, of course, of the promise that all suffering would be done away with is the cross. And maybe we don't like the idea that God can suffer. Now, theologians argue about this all the time, whether God can really suffer. It's part of a larger conversation about the impassibility of God, whether God has passions, whether God can feel pain like we can. But I say, from all of my study, that God absolutely can suffer. Or else the statement, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, is not a big deal. But the idea that a father would give his son to die in the place of someone else is a big deal. And if our understanding of God functions in any way by analogy, we have to believe that God on some level suffered at the offering of his son Jesus to die for us. I mean, what is Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, all about? Except but to give us a preview of the pain that a father might feel in offering his only son as a sacrifice. Now we suffer because of our sensitivity to pain, physical and emotional, right? We are susceptible to pain on both of those levels. And God is not susceptible to physical or emotional pain in the classic sense, but he does experience pain. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, like us, as a human being, experienced physical and emotional suffering. We know this from the Gospels. If the Gospels are clear about one thing, it's that Jesus experienced all sorts of suffering. Mental, emotional, physical. There was suffering in his body. There was suffering. He was hunger, hungry. There was sleeplessness. Temptations he experienced. Public scorn by the very people he came to save. And he suffered physical death with torture, beatings, and ultimately death. And of course, the mental anguish of being alienated and separated from his father when he cried, my father, why have you forsaken me? Something each one of you has or will feel at some point in your life, the feeling of being God forsaken. I'm careful to say that, like Jesus, God-forsakenness is temporary. Jesus' own experience of God-forsakenness. And we could have a whole series on the silence of God, right? Or what we perceive to be the silence of God. Jesus, quoting Psalm 22, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Father, why have you forsaken me? We would say he was not imagining that, but in that moment he was forsaken by the Father. And all of the wrath of God and the punishment of sin came upon Jesus in that dark hour. And we also feel at times God forsaken. But Peter wants us to see that not only it was temporary for Jesus, but that it's temporary for us too. So if you're suffering through something right now, your suffering is temporary. You may feel like this has been going on a long time, Jordan. How temp- what's your definition of temporary? But God supplies his spirit to us, and we know that this life is brief. Look what he says in verse 18. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And Peter wants us to see that for all the suffering that Jesus experienced, even the suffering unto death, that the spirit raised him. He was made alive in the spirit, and Peter wants to focus on the spirit. It is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and now lives in us. Spirit lives in us. And the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise our mortal bodies as well. And depending how old you are, you might be thinking more and more about death. I'm 47. I'll probably retire at 67. Hopefully I live to 87, 97. And it's all over. And if I did not believe that I'd be raised from the dead by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, what is all this for? You know, something happens, you got, if you're under 30 or whatever, under 40, you know, something happens in middle age, you start seeing the end. You just do, it just happens. You just start seeing the finish line. Like, okay, I'm not gonna live forever here. Uh, this is not going to go on, you know, forever. Uh, and, and so it, you know, the, the wise sages and philosophers of the old, of old that had a human skull on their desk, you know, those old pictures of those, you know, and why did they do that? Because they always, a wise person always kept death in view, that you weren't going to live forever. But every believer in Jesus who has ever lived which is just something we should draw away from this, including the Old Testament saints, which Peter's going to focus on here in a moment, those that lived during the time of Noah, every believer that has ever lived, including the Old Testament saints, who only believed in God's promises about Jesus because they had not encountered Jesus, they will be raised also from the dead and vindicated on that great day, on the day of judgment. And so Peter wants us to see that it was through the spirit that Christ was victorious over death and the spirit has been at work throughout all of redemptive history. The spirit has been at work through all of redemptive history from creation to consummation. It is the spirit that is the common thread at work. And Peter wants us to see that even in the Old Testament, Christ, though he was not present physically, in the spirit he was preaching. Look at verse 19. In whom, the spirit that is, he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Now, a little, uh, little side note or a little disclosure here. This is probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. Maybe in the whole Bible. It's a hard verse. And I'm going to try to give you a few options here. We'll have, you know, sort of seminary class for just a few minutes. I try not to do that during a sermon. I try to preach and do some proclamation. But sometimes it's necessary to sort of unpack something as confusing as this. And it's confusing. Lots of ink has been spilled over this verse. And maybe you have been exposed to different interpretations on this verse. That's right. You can take a moment and just look at it before we get into it. There are three interpretive possibilities, and before I get into them, I just want to say it's important for us to talk about things that may be theologically obscure. Why? Because if God put it in his word, it's important. You may not see the relevance of it. So what does this have to do with my life? This is great. That's great. What's the practical import of it? Sometimes the answer, folks, is I don't know. But it's important because God put it in his word and we should spend a little time talking about it. So option one, interpretive option one, is that that passage of scripture is referring to spirits, refers to unsaved human spirits during Noah's day. The unbelievers who heard Christ preaching did not obey in the days of Noah and are now suffering judgment. They are in prison. And in support of this view, Peter, in 2 Peter 2 and 5, calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. And Peter has already told us that the Spirit of Christ spoke through the Old Testament prophets. Therefore, Christ could have been speaking through Noah as a prophet. In other words, Christ preached in the days of Noah through the Spirit moving upon Noah as Noah preached. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He built the ark, proclaiming the righteousness of God and preaching repentance sort of nascent version of the gospel thousands of years ago. But it was really the spirit of Christ preaching through Noah. And the spirit was preaching through this persecuted minority, Noah and his family. Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. And the point that Peter wants to highlight is Peter himself is preaching to a persecuted minority in the first century scattered Christian exiles in Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. And this idea of vindication is really important for Christian exiles because we feel often embattled, we feel persecuted, we feel often hated by the culture. And we need to know that one day, just as God vindicated Noah, and his family, that the people of God will also be vindicated. You will be vindicated. We will be vindicated. The second interpretive option is that the spirits, this is probably the more popular and sensationalistic view, the spirits are fallen angels who are cast into hell to await final judgment. Raise your hand if you've sort of heard this version before. Surprisingly. Okay. This is probably, as I said, the more popular and sensational view. In support of this view, uh, some interpreters say that the sons of God in Genesis 6 4 are angels who sinned by cohabiting with human women when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. 
again, maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you've probably heard this view before. The strength behind this view is that almost without exception in the New Testament, spirits, plural, refers to supernatural beings rather than people. And the word prison is used exclusively to refer to the punishment of supernatural beings. And we may think, well, hell's prison, sure. But in the New Testament context, the word prison or some Greek variation of that word is almost used exclusively to talk about supernatural beings. Revelation 27 is a good example. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Second Peter 2 and 4, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell in chains of gloomy darkness. It's the same Greek word there, prison. To be kept until the judgment. Jude 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains, prison, under gloomy darkness until the judgment. And from this point of view, the message that Christ proclaimed in the Spirit is almost certainly one of triumph when Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It was a proclamation of his victory and their judgment, which doesn't mean he visited the fallen angels in prison to say, hey guys, your time of suffering is over. He visited them and said, I've been vindicated. You know, it's sort of the ultimate divine, Mm -hmm. you know, he is preaching to those imprisoned spirits, declaring his victory and their judgment. Option three is that Christ offered a second chance of salvation to those in hell. This is the worst option of the interpretive options here. And this third view uh, seems to be in direct contradiction with other scriptures and First Peter. Nowhere in scripture are the wicked dead ever said to be given a second chance after birth, excuse me, after death, and Hebrews 9.27 confirms this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. So Christ preaching to and saving lost souls imprisoned in hell has no biblical warrant and has to be rejected on biblical and theological grounds, leaving either of the first two um, interpretations uh, likely. And for me, again, I'm not dogmatic on this, and I just want to say that there are some things as like a pastor and a preacher that I can say sort of semi-dogmatically. Not sure, this is how I read it. Uh, no one's, no one's going to be saved or lost over how we interpret this particular passage. So I just want to say that uh, I think the first view makes the most sense that Jesus preached through the Holy Spirit during the lifetime of Noah. I think that this idea is consistent throughout all of Scripture, especially the New Testament writers who are sort of reinterpreting the Old Testament stories through the lens of the Spirit's work in Jesus. They are looking at all these Old Testament narratives, looking at events in redemptive history, and seeing it through the lens of Christ's power and proclamation of the gospel. They are they're reinterpreting Old Testament events with a Christological, Christ-centered, gospel-focused lens, if that makes sense. And so, when Noah was building the ark, he bore testimony to the coming judgment of God. And 2 Peter, we're in 1 Peter, but 
Peter in his second letter, look what he says. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald or preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In other words, Noah preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit whom Peter earlier called the Spirit of Christ. This is important for Peter as a Jew because he wants to show that the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is consistent with the gospel. That this is all one story arc. This is all one redemptive story. There are not these weird things that happened in the Old Testament and now Jesus is up to something new. He wants to say, no, Jesus was through the Holy Spirit at work, at creation, at work in the days of Noah, at work in the days of Abraham, at work in the days of Moses and David, etc., etc., etc. This is why we say there aren't two ways of salvation. We're all saved by grace through faith, even the Old Testament saints who kept the law. They were saved by faith, believing in the promises of God about Jesus who was to come. And we are saved because by faith we believe in the promises about Jesus who already came. Both sides of history looking to one event. The person and work of Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other. There's no, nothing else out there. There are a lot of you know, a lot of versions, but Peter wants us to see that this is the consistent story of God's plan for his people. And in the same way that God saved Noah by the flood through the flood waters, even though no one else repented, they were vindicated. Peter wants us to see that believers will also be saved and vindicated by the waters of baptism. Look at what he says in verse 21. I mean, it's a clever move, right? How does he tie that to baptism? It's, but look, it's skillful. Baptism, which corresponds to this, Noah, the flood, the salvation of his family, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. Just as Noah, God saved Noah and his families by the flood waters, God saves us through the waters of baptism. Something about water that is a symbol, an image that keeps coming up over and over and over again in scripture. It's not the act itself, but what it symbolizes. Our purification, our cleansing, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the, the removal of the pollution of sin. And God cares about symbols, but symbols have real meanings. So much so that even the symbol of the supper, which we're gonna do here in a few minutes, Jesus says, if, if, unless you do this, you have no part with me. So these symbols are very important. Water is this ongoing symbol in scripture. Noah and his family were saved through the water. But those same waters destroyed the world. The waters were waters of salvation. They were waters of judgment. The Israelites and their children were saved as they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. But those same waters came crashing down on the Egyptians, didn't they? And destroyed them. The water was a vehicle of salvation for the people of God and a testimony of judgment against the wicked. And the waters of baptism are still 
today a symbol of salvation for us and judgment for the unbeliever. In baptism, the promises of God are sealed to us as his people and as scripture says, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. So just as a side sort of application note, if you have not been baptized in the name of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, we want to talk with you if you're interested in that. If you see yourself as a, a believer and a follower of Christ, baptism is a part of the renewed life. So talk to me or one of the elders. We baptize people. We, ba we baptize people. Here's the takeaway. The things we suffer through, painful as they are, God uses to save us, to sanctify us, and to redeem us. I mean, who else can see in the horrible suffering death of Jesus such beauty but the people of God? We're accused sometimes of taking some morbid pleasure in Jesus' death. You know, some people today call it torture porn, as if we have some undual, unduly sort of pleasure at Jesus' death. But it's because they don't understand what the death of Jesus means. They don't like this idea, but we know what it means. Because the Spirit was at work in Jesus, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous, the substitution for us, and the spirit at work in him, bringing him back to life, will bring us all back to life and raise our mortal bodies from the grave. And so if you're staring down the hallway of, you know, your life and you see that door, maybe you don't have many years left. Hopefully you do. But you know you're getting closer, like everyone who lived before you, take hope. Be encouraged. Because this message of the gospel is that you will not rot in the grave. That the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is here today in all of his resurrection power and glory and stands ready to save you. Amen. The spirit is at work in us, giving us life through our hardships, through our suffering, through the diseases we wrestle against through every one of our difficulties and diseases and trials. And the Spirit is in us, in you, causing you to persevere in your faith until the very end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for the grace that we have received undeserved through your son Jesus and his sacrificial substitution for us as hard as it might have been for the Father to offer the Son. It was for us, and we look to that sacrificial offering and the willingness of Jesus to lay down his life for us. We look at it in gratitude and thanksgiving in our hearts, exult in worship and glory for you, O God, who save us, redeem us, and rescue us Thank you now, we pray, for your grace. Help us to take these truths and apply them to our lives in whatever way appropriate. 
that we might be the people of hope, that our faith might give us hope in every circumstance and every trial, that we would not be cynical and hopeless, discouraged, but that your spirit would give us life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.